right, well, good morning. How are y'all doing today? Surviving with that time change? Ooh, it was brutal. Anyways, uh, got a question to ask you as we open up. Uh, Heather has been watching some rom-coms on occasion when I come home, and one that I have seen on repeat a couple times is Leap Year. And there is a question that is asked in that. If you're not familiar with it, watch it. Um, it's a decent one. But um, there's a question that is asked in that movie, and it is, if your house is on fire, what is it that you are going to go and grab? And so you actually see it played out where the guy that the girl thinks she's in love with, their fire alarm goes off, and they're like, oh, we got to grab everything. And so he's like, get the laptop, get the cell phones, go get the TV, get, you know, everything that's of value. And then she realizes, wait a minute, this guy is caught up in all these things. And so she goes back, you know how all rom-coms go, goes back to the other guy that you never thought she was going to end up being with. And so she goes back to him, and he says, if there was a fire, I'd get one thing, my grand mother's ring and it's like oh so touching but so what's the question that's the question that I want to pose to you this morning if there were a fire in your house and you only had a couple of minutes to be able to grab something what are the things that you would go after and that you would grab I mean I already was like all right there's a couple things obviously because I'm a great husband and father my family um you know without a doubt uh, and then from there, honestly, it's like you might go and grab the cash box because everything's about to go up in flames, so you're going to need a little extra spending money. Um, you might find some other valuable possessions that you go run after. You might find some things that are irreplaceable that you're like, man, I need to grab that. So you're going to grab that. The reality of it is pretty much probably that whatever you go after is what means something to you because at some point that brings you happiness because that's really what we all are pretty much seeking after i i read some stats on happiness here in america this week and did you know that 8.4 percent of all adults would consider themselves extremely depressed not just as in man i'm not really happy but like clinically depressed 17 percent of everybody under the age of 18 would identify as being extremely depressed so you're looking at some 25 percent of people in america are saying not only are we not really happy we are so unhappy that we are seeking medication and seeking counsel we are doing something to try and change that there was a survey that Gallup polls did, and it said pretty much that 24% of people are unhappy in America, and that is at an all-time high right now, whereas only 19% of people in America would say, I am really happy with things, which is at an all-time low. And then 11%, one out of every 10 people in the United States over the age of 12 are on some form of antidepressant. And so here's the question that I'm kind of left with. We live in America, the land of opportunity, where in our Constitution and the Declaration of it's one of those documents that we were founded on, it says the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. That we live in that country 
where we have storage units. I said this last week, and no offense if you have that, but it's the reality. We have storage units to hold our stuff that makes us happy because we're constantly looking for that next thing that this is how I will be happy if I buy that thing. But yet what we see is that this generation coming up is actually the least happy generation in the history of our nation, in the land of things. In a time where we have so much stuff, we're actually unhappier than we've ever been. And then I saw this other stat that I thought was really interesting, and it's like maybe there's a correlation there. Only 4% of Americans today hold to a literal biblical worldview. That they might say, yeah, there's a God and, you know, we need to live for a higher purpose and the Bible is something we should live by, but they don't hold to it with the firm grasp that we talked about in Colossians. That you're going to let everything else go so that you can hold on to the truth of God. So we are seeing the least happy nation or generation with the lowest number of Americans who believe that the Bible is really of any importance who hold to it in a biblical world view. And so we've been going through this uh, book called Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, where Solomon is kind of answering this question of, how do I find happiness? Because last week we were talking about how he is searching and he is trying to find happiness. And this is where he says, I'm going to have the rubber meet the road and I have everything at my disposal. I'm going to just throw everything at it and see What is it that can truly bring me happiness? But as we saw last week, he's going to say it's all emptiness. That the search that we are doing, it leads to vanity, meaningless, or emptiness. That if we keep seeking after these things, trying to find happiness outside of a godly worldview, we're going to be left empty. And that's what Solomon's going to tell us this morning. So if you'll join me as we open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our word today. So Father God, we just come before you, and again, thank you for letting us gather together and publicly read your word. And God, I just pray that you speak to us today, that if we see ourselves in any of these things that Solomon is talking about, and we see that we are making idols out of them and pursuing after them, over you, God, that you reveal that to us so that we can just live for you in everything. God, we need you to speak to us today, and it's in the name of Jesus that we say this. Amen. And so, as we mentioned last week, when we read this text, the best thing that we can do is learn from it and grow from it. To read this and not think, well, Solomon, you lived in a different time, and so you don't really understand. I know better than you, Solomon. God's word actually tells us Solomon was the wisest man that has ever lived. And so to think that we would know something more than Solomon would be like Isaiah when he's able to speak to me, being like, you know what, Dad? You don't know what's best about nutrition. I should be able to eat all the donuts and all the candy that I want. And it's like, no, son, you don't understand. That would be like me talking to Solomon and being like, Solomon, more not even talking to Solomon, talking to God and being like, you know what, God, I know this is what your word says. You don't understand. I can do this. Like, yeah, everybody else before me that had a solely donut diet got fat and diabetic, but 
I'm not that way. And it's like, actually, you are, because it's the human nature. And so we need to learn from what Solomon is telling us, because here's the thing that we might think, and what Solomon's going to reveal to us today. We might think, well, Solomon, it's the way that the world says it. You just haven't partied like we've partied. And Solomon's like, you know, I have way nicer things than you. I have way more money than you. I have way more ability than you. I know what I'm talking about. And so when Solomon tells us these things, we are called to learn from them and grow from them. And so our first point has four subpoints because they are all, can things bring me happiness? Searching for happiness in things. And so we've got four subpoints, alliteration, they all start with a P. And the first one that Solomon tells us is the party life. The party life will not bring you happiness. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So Solomon is saying, I, I tried out the party scene. And not maybe literally the party scene, because he said, I never got drunk, but I thought, wine. You know, you look at all the commercials and the, everybody's drinking beer, all the sitcoms, everybody's drinking, laughing it up, just living the great life. And they're trying to sell you that if you drink this specific kind of alcohol, you're going to be happy and you will be able to enjoy life because all the celebrities drink fill in the blank. And so you should too. And then underneath that, it says, please drink responsibly. Do not drink while driving. Do not drink if you're under 21, because this can actually ruin your life. But Solomon is saying, I tried this. I gave myself into the drink. I gave myself to wine. And he says, I never got outside of my own reason. My heart was still guiding me through it. But I wanted to see, will this bring me happiness? And he's like, no, it's not going to give me happiness happiness. So he said the party life is not going to bring you happiness. Again, we have so many youth that are being able to receive drink and drugs and all these things that the world says this will make you happy. And again, we have the most unhappy generation in the history of our nation where this is more abundant than ever. And yet they're as unhappy as ever. So the party life isn't going to bring you happiness. So he says, well, okay, it's not partying. Maybe it's the plush life, being able to buy all of the nicest things and being able to live that good life. Because I'll tell you, this is what I struggle with right now is I like things. I mean, the next shiny gimmick is like, sign me up. I mean, I'm ready to switch out my car. Kurt's with me every three years. It's like, all right, I drove this one for a couple miles. I'm ready for something new. And that'll make me happy. And it's like I should learn. And Heather's going to use this against me next time I say, we should get this car. So I already see it coming. But he says, you know, I was able to buy myself things. Verse 4. He said, I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. 
I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so it's like he said, if my heart wants it, I'm going to give it to him. And he's like, you know, here in the modern day U.S. where we are very wealthy as a nation, he's like, you think your 401k is nice? Let me tell you about what I was able to do. He said, we're, we're told every year he received 666 talents of gold. That's, we're told that in 1 Kings 10, 14. Every year people brought him 666 talents of gold. One talent of gold is 75 U.S. pounds. And so every year he is receiving $1.1 trillion in today's economy. And that's not talking about what he got to start with. That's what everybody's bringing to him as tribute. I mentioned this last week. Today he is the 17th richest country in the world. Not person in America, 17th richest country in the world. He had money. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 27, he had so much silver that it was as common as the pebbles on the road. It'd be like, we have a lot of gravel roads around here. It'd be like driving down there on silver. And that's how much silver Solomon had. He had talents and talents of gold. He had silver upon silver. He had armies. He had an army of 4,000 horses. He had an army of 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. His palace was massive. It was 154 feet by 77 feet wide by 46 feet tall. And it wasn't made of, you know, steel. It was made of cedar and all the most beautiful jewels you could imagine. He took seven years to build the temple of the Lord. He took 13 years to build his own palace. It was a thing of beauty. He had pools. You know, we, we think of pools and it's like our backyard pools. Solomon's pools, 3,000 years later, are still visible on Google Maps. You can look at it. My pool never lasted more than five years. Solomon's pool, 3,000 years later, still standing. And he used that to water his gardens. I mean, he made abundant, beautiful pools. He was wise. First Kings chapter 4, verse 32 says that he wrote over 3,000 songs and over 1,005, or sorry, the other way around, 3,000 proverbs and over 1,005 songs. It's like he, he knew what he was doing. It mentioned in there about his concubines. Because, you know, we're always like, oh, man, if I could just have that person, it would make me happy. If I could be in that relationship, it could make me happy. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So to explain what a concubine is, I heard it explained this way. It's like a wife who you don't have to buy a Valentine present for. So, I mean, it's like in that day, it was a wife without the wife privileges is the best way we could explain it. So really an equivalent, he had 1,000 wives. And then lastly, Solomon's dress. We're told in Matthew chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus is saying that he's comparing the lilies of the field to Solomon. And he says, not even Solomon in all his splendor is clothed like the lilies of the field. So 
roughly a thousand years later, Jesus is still talking about how well Solomon is dressed. And so it's like you, you look at your own life and you're like, yeah, but Solomon didn't know. And it's like, no, Solomon had every tool at his disposal and he sought after all this stuff to see, is that what will bring me happiness? And he said, it doesn't. The queen of Sheba really equated everything or wrapped everything up about how amazing everything Solomon had in 1 Kings chapter uh, 10, verse 4 through 5, where she comes and she's bringing him 120 talents of gold. And she says that she saw all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food for his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. And notice that. There was no more breath in her. She saw everything that Solomon had, and she was just like, nothing else to say. You have it all. And yet Solomon is saying, having it all doesn't even bring me happiness. It's vanity. Solomon was powerful. Going on in verse 9, he said, So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained in me. He was more powerful than the president. He had everything at his disposal, including command, and he could usher. He had people coming and working for him. He taxed the people. He was the most powerful person at that time, and he reigned during a time of peace. And yet he says, power didn't bring me happiness. Status didn't bring me happiness. Being able to be in control did not bring me happiness. And then lastly, verse 10 through 11, having a possessive life. We already talked about the plush life, the possessive life. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then he wraps it all up. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So here's the truth about what Solomon is telling us, though, because he said it there in verse 10. These things will bring happiness. To sit here and say that, you know, the ways of the world is not going to bring you any form of happiness is not true. Otherwise, I truly believe we would not be tempted by them. Each one of us has different vices. Each one of us is being drawn by something. For example, you put an olive in front of me, no temptation to eat it. I'm not even going to second guess it. It's like, no, get that away from me. You put dirt cake in front of me, I'm going to fight. Because I know, oh man, that dirt cake, it looks good. I know it's going to taste good. And I know it's going to give me a moment of enjoyment. I will be happy as I eat that dirt cake until I digest it. And then it's going to just, I'm going to feel it all through my body. It's going to be like, oh my goodness, why did I do that? So to say that these things of the world, that it's like, well, they offer nothing to me. If they offer nothing, the world wouldn't even enjoy them. But there is a sense of happiness going after these because Solomon said that in verse 10. He said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. 
And so it's like, yeah, I kind of felt good when I did that. I made, I mean, we all know a good day's hard work, looking at something that we've built and being like, ah, I feel pretty good about that until it breaks. And so to say there's no satisfaction in them is not entirely true. The truth is it's not going to last. Something new is going to come out. Something better is going to happen. It's going to break. We're going to get old. Whatever it is that we are seeking our satisfaction and our ultimate meaning in, if it's in this world, is going to end up letting us down. Because that's the thing is we fall for the lie that, oh, if I could just have that new forerunner, then I would be happy. Oh, if I could just get that promotion, then people would look at me and they would realize who I really am. Oh, if I could just be friends with that person, if I could just move to this location, if I could just quit my job, if I could, whatever it is that you fill in the blank of, if I could, that'll make me happy. It's a lie. For a moment, it's true. And then eventually, we've all fallen into that cycle. Eventually, it is going to lead us into realizing this is meaningless. This is empty. Finding all the toys of my childhood that I used to say, I want those. And if I didn't get them, I threw a fit over just to three days later be like, I don't even want that anymore. Now, that might be how we look to God. When we're like, God, why can't I have this? I want it. God, let me have this, please. And then you get it. And it's like, God, can you take that away from me? Because I didn't know I was going to have that coworker when you gave me that job. And I really don't like it. We do that. And yet we need to realize this will not bring us happiness. Seeking for happiness in possessions and things is vanity. It's emptiness. So then Solomon goes on. And he says, okay, so maybe it's not in indulging ourselves. Maybe it's in living a good life, like being a morally good person. Maybe that's what brings us happiness. So he continues on in verse 12. He says, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what, what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. So then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. And so here Solomon is saying that, okay, what I did is I decided to live the right life. I tried to live with wisdom. And we see that in the world today. That even according to secular world, there are varying levels of morality. That we still live within a level of morality. Everybody, I hope, in the world, unless you're just like purely vile, would agree that it is better to give a kid a piece of candy than to trip an elderly person walking across the street. Right? I mean, if you say no, talk to me after church. We'll pray for you. 
But we all have different, I mean, we all would agree on a level of morality. And so what Solomon is saying is that it is better to live a moral life. He said, I applied myself to living wise because the wise person walks with his eyes open. This world, if you do dumb things, you pay the consequences. If you decide to go rob a bank, you're probably going to jail. We have a set of moral standards that are anchored in the word, but you don't have to be a Christian to live a moral life. And so people are like, well, I'm a, I'm a good moral person. I tried to do the right thing. I sacrificed vices. I'm trying to live in chastity. I'm trying not to lie. I'm trying not to steal. I'm trying to live my life, even though I won't admit it, to the Ten Commandments, at least the later five, but I don't believe in the word. And so we would say, yeah, why do you do that? Well, because I like my freedom. I don't want to go to jail. I like my relationships. I know that if I do certain things, relationships will break apart. And so Solomon is saying, I tried to live the good moral life. But then he's like, if I die and I live the good life, and the evil person dies and they lived a bad life, and we all just die, what's the point? What is the point of living a moral life if there is no life after? What is the point of making those sacrifices? Because everybody's sacrificing that is trying to live a moral life. I mean, we all are like, all right, I'll go to the gas station and I'll pay $5 for a soda. And it's like, it would be so easy just to sneak that thing in my pocket. And if I can get away with it, why don't I just get away with it? Why don't I just do that? If there is not a higher calling, what is the point of a moral life if everybody ends up dying the same? And we all end up becoming worm food again. And we end up just being forgotten later on. And so Solomon is even telling us, aside from a moral life because of what Christ has done for you, if you are just being morally good because you don't believe in anything else and you're just being a morally good person, what's the point? He says that in verse 13 through 14. He says, I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There is more gain in light than in darkness. Yes, it is good to be a morally good person. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. But yet I perceived the same event happens to them all. They all breathe their final breath and cease to exist on this life. And so then in verse 15, he said in his heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. So why am I living this moral life? Why have I been so wise if it's for nothing? He said, I said in my heart, this also is vanity. To be morally good means you deprive yourself of certain vices, but it means nothing in the end if we are just here on this earth and then we cease to exist. So he says, you're not gonna find it in your things. You're not gonna find it in trying to just be a moral good person. And then he wraps it up by saying, you're not gonna find it in your work. Because a lot of people are like, hey, how do, how am, how do I make myself happier? And you know, we live in the Midwest, blue collar country where it's like a good, honest day's work that you can go home, hang your hat up, kick your feet up, and be like, man, I was productive today. Maybe that is where I will find happiness. He goes on in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil 
in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I mean, look at our culture where people are striving and striving and they are giving their lives over to work. Where parents are like, I'm going to work 60 hours a week and I'm going to come home and barely be with my family so that I can give them a better future. And then it's like you really just become a slave to your work. You really are just working so that you can get more stuff because the Midwest culture is this, especially I feel it's this way towards like manliness. If you want to be a man, you have to work harder and the longer you work, the more of a man you are. And it's like, shouldn't we like base our manhood on how you are being a father and a husband? Shouldn't we base it on not just how many hours you can be a slave to your job, but on the, the disciples that you are making? That's what a Christian man is. Someone who is investing in the generations after them, living for Christ no matter what comes their way, and then raising up generations behind them. I heard it said on the radio this week, uh, they were talking about the news, and they said there are more women in the workforce than we've ever seen before. That more and more women are going in. There's multiple reasons why. Some of it is the feminist movement. I don't need to be the stay-at-home mom. I want to go work. But then one of the things they said is obviously, as you felt it, the cost of living. Inflation has hit us. And so it's hard for families to only be under a single income. They need multiple incomes. And I got to thinking about this as I heard that. Because it was like, okay, so... We work so that we can buy things. And then we spend so much money to get stuff that we have to keep on working so that we can pay for that stuff. So what we wanted to do was to work to get stuff, to play with our stuff. But now all we do is we work. And that boat sits in the garage. And that camper might get taken out once a year. That we are working so that we can pay off four mortgages because of all of the debt that we have. And it's like, man... What happened to, and I'm guilty of this too, uh, I'm at the moment where it's like, oh man, it'd be nice to downsize completely and be able to just live on a small house in the middle of nowhere and just be like, you know what, we're going to grow our own food and do all that stuff. But instead, I fell for the lie of, ooh, the bigger, fancier house is what I need. And so I go and it's like, ah, oh, that's what we're living in. And I love our house. It's a blessing from God, I truly believe. But it just hit me that it's like, man, I work to afford all this stuff, and then I keep, I, I work because I love you all, honestly. That's why I work. But it's like, you know, it's this constant cycle, and we get to the point where we are slaves to our work, and we're unhappy because we are so busy with our stuff. And so Solomon is saying, you can toil and toil all you want, and then he says, even at night, you're not going to be able to find rest. 
that you're going to be working sun up, sun down, and in between as well. And so Solomon, he concludes everything in verse 24. He says, there is nothing better for a person to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon saying, everything you do is going to end up being meaningless. And so really what he winds it all down there to saying is, enjoy life now. Because that's all you got. If that's the reality. If all I have to do is live in this moment right now, then why not eat, sleep, and be merry? But let's go back to the very beginning. In verse 12 of chapter 1. He tells us this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, there's a reason for this emptiness, and it is to point you to God. That when we strive to find our our acceptance and our happiness in these things, it's going to be empty. To point us to that need that Solomon goes on later to say that, in a paraphrase, there is a God-shaped hole in everybody's heart that only can be filled with God. That we try and put a square peg in a round hole, and it's like, man, happiness, nope, things, nope, what goes in there? And God's like, it's me. He has put eternity on the hearts of man. He is revealing himself to us and saying, that striving you're going after, it can only be found in one place, and that's through him. And then all these things find purpose. So I'm not saying that if you have a nice car, shame on you. I'll take one. But, you you know, I might be driving with a new car here in a little bit. I hope so. That thing's about to run out. But those are good things. But when we make those good things ultimate things, they become bad things. So God has given us them to glorify him. If you have a nice house, praise God for that. Use it to open up your doors and welcome people in to commune about God and fellowship under Christian fellowship and draw people in to one another and to Jesus ultimately. If you have nice things, use them to glorify God. That God has given us these things for his glory. That outside of using them for glorifying him, it's a terrible thing. It's like, I'm going to go there, sex. Sex is a bad thing when it is used outside of God's glory. It is abused. It is um, just turned into these bad things that God has given us sex as a beautiful thing to glorify him. But when we step outside of the realm of scripture and we're like, you know what? I'm going to be happy if I just give myself over to these desires. It doesn't lead to happiness. It leads to destruction. 
But when we are within the confines of what God's word tells us, it is a beautiful thing that God blesses. Same with your things. Same with your work. Same with your life. To take all of these things outside of the scope of doing them for the glory of God gives them no meaning. But when you redeem them under the banner of using them to glorify God, your job becomes meaningful. Your things become meaningful. Your life and the reason that you live morally good becomes meaningful because you are doing that out of what Christ has done for you. And so God is telling us that we find emptiness in all these things because they are to point us to him. And he says in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. What he is saying is you can ignore the words of these book, of this book. And you can keep on trying and being like Solomon, you know what? I don't believe you. So I'm going to buy the nicest stuff and I'm going to keep trying to find happiness in there. And he says what is crooked cannot be made straight. It's not it's not going to happen. It is a losing battle. Or you can surrender everything you do to Jesus and he will give you purpose. You can surrender everything you have to Jesus and he will give you blessing and he will give you an abundant life. And you'll realize it is far greater than the things you were seeking after here. And so you might be like, man, I really want a nice house, but I'm gonna surrender that over to Jesus. And he's like, actually, you know what? I want you to go to Africa and live in a tiki hut and do ministry for me. And you go and you're like, this is far better than the plush life I lived in America because I am glorifying God and I have a far deeper purpose in it all. And so what we do is we let go of the things of the world and we hold on to the things of Jesus. And you know what Jesus tells us? And I think it's uh, Matthew chapter six, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So seek after Jesus and you'll get blessings in this life. Uh, Solomon, again, the wisest man, tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. And then he says, <laughs> complete blank on what the other one is. Proverbs 3, 3 through 4, or no, Proverbs 3, it's in there, Proverbs 3, read it, where he says that if you trust in him, he will give you the desires of your heart. If you trust God, he'll give you what you desire. And so what we do is we redeem everything and bring it to Christ. Because without the work of the cross, everything we do is meaningless. It's empty. But God sent his son to redeem us from hell so that we could live for him and have a purpose that goes beyond this life. And so he offers that today. Because again, I, I'll admit that as I prepare these things, it reveals in me the things that I'm seeking after happiness in. It's like, oh man, I've really been shining, uh, chasing after those shiny things. And it's like, God, all I want is more of you. 
Let me have more of you. And so as Kurt and they come up to lead us in this last song, I just want to offer that to you, that you pray that prayer. God, reveal to me what I am seeking my purpose, my identity, my happiness in outside of you. And then help me break down that idol. And if you have not given your life to Christ and you're like, man, I have no purpose, I have been living the meaningless life, then this song is a great opportunity for you to give your life over to him. He says, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved and then you will have purpose. And so if you have not made a decision to live for Christ, now is that time to come forward during this song to give your life to Christ And then, man, we would just love to walk with you through that and what the next steps look like for your journey in the Christian faith. So whatever God is doing on your heart, I encourage you, just take this song to meditate on that. Father God, we thank you that you sent Jesus so that we can find purpose and meaning. And so God, I just pray that you work in all of our hearts that if we are seeking after anything outside of you, God, help us see that and help us redeem that so that we can just live for you and glorify you in everything. And God, if there be anybody here today or anybody that hears this message maybe later on or online, God, help them see that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that they only come to the Father through Jesus and help them give their life over to you that they would find salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus and be able to live out of that. God, we entrust it all to you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen. As we stand number 483, the Savior is waiting. And as